My name is Claire Press, and this is Wardrobe Crisis, the podcast that unzips fashion's issues. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Ah, are we starting? <laughs> we are seeing a kind of almost Zoolander-esque caricature of how excessive fashion can be. Our look shifting was like 16 to 20 hours a day. I would work like 450 hours in a month and making only $6. Creativity is one of the most powerful things that humans have. We underestimate the power of beauty and the power of humour. These are qualities that connect people and connectivity is a really potent thing right now. Don't point a finger, impart knowledge and information instead. Plus size modelling can go suck it. Um, (laughs) It's our job as designers to explore and discover beauty everywhere. So your voice is crucial and powerful in the supply chain. Join me every week as we talk ethics, sustainability and the business and madness of fashion. From who made your clothes to how they impact on the environment to the politics of personal style. We are so hot right now. It's getting hard. My parents feel that this is a waste of time. I don't get away because everything is just fine. My Yves Saint Laurent, Lulu de la Falaise, Pierre Cardin, Chanel, Givenchy, Couture, Pret a Porter, and vintage shopping in the Paris flea markets. This week's episode is très chic. My guest is the inimitable Paris-based stylist, costume and accessories designer, Catherine Barber. She's an it girl, although she doesn't love that phrase, but there's no escaping it since she appears in Vanity Fair's best dress list for this year, which just came out. And she's certainly a street style star, although again, that's not how she would define herself. But for our purposes, I'm glad that she is, because I can't think of a more glamorous pinup for eco-aware transport than a baba. And please do check out the show notes for this episode to see a lot of delightful photos of her pedalling around Paris in extraordinary ensemble. Riding a bike to the Paris Fashion Week shows wearing a vintage kimono, high heels or even couture. No problem, darling. It creates an aerodynamism to the look, as she puts it. We recorded this in person while Barbara was back in Australia where she grew up, although she grew up in Sydney. Catherine and I were both in Perth as guests of the fashion festival there. I always love talking to Catherine because she has a very lively brain and a really deep understanding of fashion history and context with a particular fascination with Paris fashion in the 70s. That's really her thing. It was the week that Yves Saint Laurent's partner, Pierre Berger, died and the whole industry was in nostalgic mode. So we talk a bit about that, and I was going to call this French Fashion 101, but cycling in heels just sounds a lot more fabulous, doesn't it? Still, I'm looking at this episode as a companion piece to episodes, I think it's 12 to 14, with Simon Doonan, Stephen Jones, and Linda Jackson. So these are episodes that really decode how the fashion system has changed over the years. For anyone who loves the creativity and artistry that makes fashion tick, these shows are for you. On another note, I've set up a patron page for the podcast. I want to say patron. I'm not really sure what you say. Is that the name of the tequila? It's also the name of a campaign page that allows you, my beloved listeners, to pledge towards keeping this podcast going. Every little helps, even a dollar a month. And I'll share a link to that page in the show notes. If that's not your thing, you can also help by sharing about the podcast, telling your friends on social media, and of course, reviewing and rating it in iTunes. And I thank you very much for that. D'accord. Il est temps de commencer. Okay, it's time to begin. 
they really were renegades. They were against what the system and establishment was. Lulu de la Feleza was the ultimate muse and uh, collaborator with Yves Saint Laurent, but she originally started with Ossie Clark before. And I do believe when Lulu officially met Eve, she was working with Holston in New York, living with Barry Berenson, the granddaughter of Elsa Scaparelli and the sister of Marisa Berenson, who is also a very divine dear friend. And Lulu and Barry, who was becoming a young photographer at that moment, were both fabulous. They were more than it girls, darling. We're having this conversation about the circle around Yves Saint Laurent in the same week that Pierre Berger just passed away. We just lost Pierre, uh, Monsieur Berger, and I was also lucky to have known Monsieur Pierre Berger, not as an intimate friend, but an acquaintance, him being intimate friends of intimate friends of mine. I was actually at his home in Marrakesh for New Year, Marjorelle, the jardin, but the house Marjorelle, that he and Yves brought together. Um, Such iconic photographs of their time then in the in the 70s. I mean, with Talitha Getty and Jean-Paul Getty and, you know, the Stones and Warhol and that whole 60s Moroccan hippie but deluxe was definitely birthed. So for listeners who are not fully aware of the story behind mm. Yves Saint Laurent and Pierre Berger, Berger was Saint Laurent's other half, his mm. business stalwart, the mm. man who allowed his creativity to soar and kept the business running. And they were a creative partnership. It was hugely successful. They were lovers. But then when that passed, they were still creative they collaborators. They were a powerhouse in the fashion industry. And really, without Pierre Berger, I don't think a lot of... He wrote the rules. He wrote the book of uh, the fashion empire, you know, fashion house empire and uh, when Yves Saint Laurent was no longer at Dior I mean in a way he was fired under different pretexts they really uh, opened up a lot more to the creative whereas now I feel like those doors that were opened by Pierre and Yves together a lot of them are closing in a way and uh, because of the possibility of being young designers and then taking over the world at that point which now it's a much more corporate machine of course and they fought a lot of the corporate cannibalism in the 70s and you know with the licensing etc i mean pierre cardin was perhaps the (laughs) The licensing king (laughs) like 800 he, he gave birth. Monsieur Pierre Cardin is still alive and I am also happy to say that I do know him and I have uh, been seated on his right or left at multiple dinners and he is also one of the oldest and the eldest of all of them. I think he's 193. <laughs> Not quite. <laughs> minus the 100, but yeah. close to 100. And he's so sharp and so mentally on as well. When we talk about these people who are, these stories are stories that, as they do, obviously you, have enthralled me all through my interest in fashion. Like, this is what makes me excited to get out of bed and talk about fashion. These oxygen. His, yeah, but it is. But <laughs> when Pierre Berger died... Diane von Furstenberg was one of the many people who paid her respects in the media and she told WWD, Mm. this is the end of an era. She said, with him, a whole world goes. Wait. Catherine, I want to bring that back to you. Moi? 
Oui. Where does your... Um, and the reason I began talking about Saint Laurent was not just the context of the fact that we have lost Pierre Berger so recently, but because I know that your own vintage journey and also your the evolution of your time in Paris is quite inextricably linked to Saint Laurent. was one of the first blouses that you found in a flea market when you moved to Paris. Yes. You also bought pieces when they sold off his archive or from auction, didn't yes, you? Yes, 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 yes. Well, bravo for your research, but um, the first piece I bought... I mean, I always loved the allure of Saint Laurent, but when I was living in Sydney still, it was more like Westwood, Osbeck, and, you know, the maybe rural Britannia. But you weren't wearing that because you were wearing stuff from Newtown op shops, right? Of course, but I would save, 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 and maybe invest in a Westwood T-shirt. Okay. Uh, extravaganza or a Gautier handbag extravaganza but I was ultra ultra vintage since the very very beginning but vintage in Sydney at that period perhaps not anymore but then was quite limited to the period of perhaps no earlier than the 50s maybe really 40s and a lot of 70s which we live but you know voila Uh, but the first uh, I'm guessing the first year I went to the markets and perhaps one of the first market moments in Paris at the Puce Montreuil which has completely changed I do not go anymore sadly but it was ultra ultra divine in the sense where it was such a real market and you could find anything and everything and I remember buying like a David Bowie cassette because I needed to update my music you know this was 1996 right or yes is that when you moved to Paris yes and it was still in France the French franc and I believe I bought that blouse for maybe 50 francs which was so expensive but which is really how much like equivalent perhaps eight dollars yeah and it was a nothing blouse on the hanger but then I was like oh j'adore Yves Saint Laurent you know Paris j'adore yes and I bought and I tried and uh wearing Saint Laurent the precision in the cut for me, no matter what size, it could be from a 34 to a 42, the sleeve always falls. No matter what, a coat, a jacket, a blouse, anything. For my petite proportions, it was just perfect. And uh, it was interesting. I would actually get a lot of uh, positive commentary on the blouse. And I would be like, oh, this whole thing? You know, <laughs> may I started to understand the language and the uh, relationship that Yves Saint Laurent himself had with women, with the fabric, with all the elements that uh, that he would create with, be it the most simple to eventually couture, darling. And later, I mean, of course, I was like, then I would find another Saint Laurent piece. And, and it wasn't like uh, everyone was buying the Saint Laurent vintage pieces, to be honest. And they were so cheap. And this is, again, in French francs. And I remember one night watching on Arte, which is a very international German-French television channel, an Italian film with Geraldine Chaplin, a young Geraldine Chaplin, and I forgot the name of the film, but she was wearing the identical same uh, blouse. And I love how it can be translated visually, cinematically, but also in real life. Wearing Saint Laurent is like wearing perhaps a really divine perfume. Because it's there, but it's not, but it is, you know, it does not wear you, but it enhances. Um, now, I want to get on to your like relationship to film, oh, <laughs> your, the storytelling of clothes, all of the rest, but I know that 
anyone listening to this who doesn't know your story will be saying, hang on, from Newtown to Paris... Newtown op shops, not your life. Oui, oui. Now, Mais j'adore um, Newtown, j'adore. No one j'adores in Sydney. What, what <laughs> let, us, let us learn. <laughs> so your mother is French or part French? Part French. And she was a dressmaker and there was always fabrics, 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 machines. And she made uh, made-to-measure clothes, pseudo-couture, if you like. Um, But not with that price tag. No, no. I mean, she wasn't doing major embellishments and she didn't have an empire, but it was, you know, for the clientele, for special events. I mean, Australia is fabulous with so many spectacular, you know, the environment, the landscape, the birds, the, the everything, colors. the colors, you know. The light. And the light, the feeling. There is a sense of isolation that I felt But see, my mother spoke seven languages and uh, there was always like French thrown in. And prior to being in Sydney, my family also lived in France and we also have relatives in France. So there would be French music or, you know, but mm. it was more perhaps my maybe insomnia where I would be also watching film at two, three in the morning uh, because I couldn't sleep, you know, and it would always be like a black and white classic, divine, something, you know. And, uh, I mean, the eye and the mind travels. When you arrived in Paris, did you feel like, this is my place? Of course. Just yes. like that? No, no, immediately. Like, when I arrived in Paris, I felt I had been there before. And it was more than what I expected, In, I mean, in a, a lot, positive way. There's something about Paris that is a particularly magical thing that I feel many people relate to, that people yearn for it. It's its place in the the heart of literature and at the heart of art stories and all those romantic things about, I don't know, like from Toulouse-Lautrec down to Batiste to anything really that you can think of. All those those art movements that oui. happened in those cafes, it's very oui, evocative oui, oui. whether or not you've ever been there. Oui. I think lots of kids grow up looking at art in particular and thinking about well, well there is there. a sensibility of punk oh punk but when i say punk it's like the punk cafe society the renegades like for me uh simone de beauvoir and sartre were punks in the sense where i mean i'm not talking about visually punks going to a concert but the way they were also breaking away from conformity and uh, also writing the rules to opening up and breaking a lot of rules. And that's what punk is for me. It, the evolution as well. You know, the neo-romantic turn-of-the-century poets were major punks, you know, from the Victorian yeah. era. So, so it's cyclical. And I think right now we need the punk now, <laughs> especially considering what's happening everywhere. I mean, it's sort of escalating and... Climate change, hello, which we can't ignore. And I think uh, being punk is also considering our resources. And Well, you're describing the role of art, really. I mean, we, as the world of commerce overtakes the world of art and so many of our contexts, it is easy to lose sight of that kind of beating heart of what makes art mm. interesting. And it is mm. challenging culture, mm. reinventing things, questioning. Expression. I mean, like you mentioned, those major, you know, be it surrealism, cubism, they all sort of birthed from the hardest periods in history, sociologically speaking, between wars. And I always prefer to look and hope on the more positive sensibility of uh, what we are living 
whenever it's tough, uh, then, well, we have to rise. And rising is creating perhaps another language, opening up our vision more, seeing multitude of colours, not necessarily on acid. <laughs> <laughs> it's no, sometimes but, in a Leonardo you know, dress. No, but voila. <laughs> I mean, the 60s was another revolution. May, uh, may when I think as humans, we are major forces to be also reckoned with. And I think creativity always flourishes, whether, whether there is um, a reinforcement from government or, you know, funding, etc. I think uh, when there is any type of crisis, the arts save us save us personally and globally I prefer to believe but it's interesting people think fashion's just surface but actually a lot of the more interesting designers came from a place of real big ideas well fashion can be considered on a trend level which is perhaps where superficial and disposable can come into but you know fashion is also a reaction and a reflection of the time capsule we are in right now. And, you know, whether we are recycling ideas, it's a different vocabulary, it's a different vibration. And um, I don't have anything against being inspired because I'm constantly inspired by multitudes of everything. And I think it's beautiful and it, it has always been that way. Then you have also like really the copy collage and do we want to go into the Zaras of the high street and, you know, where they literally do. But, you know, Zara can be, it could be okay. can be okay. Uh, I mean, for, for those that cannot afford the ultimate, just about like Gucci, the Valentino of the moment. And because I see either friends or perhaps models when casting or, you know, I'll be like, oh, that's cute. What are you? Zara. And they know how to catch that uh, mm-hmm. trend and dilute it. And no, it's not the same make and quality and the details are not the same. But, you know, I don't buy Zara, but I'm not against. I'm not against anything that mm-hmm. doesn't harm. No, but I mean, like the Mother Teresa of fashion. (laughs) (laughs) If it harms, then no, darling. No, no, darling, not chic. No, no, not chic. Not chic du tout. (laughs) Je n'adore pas. J'adore pas du tout. Catherine, I want to take you back to Paris when you first arrived. I know that you worked, although I don't know how, but I know that you collaborated with and have worked in some form early on with Givenchy, with Chanel, with Balmain. What did you do? It was more studio, uh, and for example... So styling, or...? Well, see, for example, at Chanel, you have the studio, but Carl does everything, you know, and you have all the busy, busy... Petima? But no, oh, but the, the Petima be- are in the atelier who I completely pay homage to every single one of them. They are genius so who are all the so, busy bees uh, people running the around studio. with the silver tray with the coca-cola on it well <laughs> that and no i mean it's a busy like if you harem but carl is amazing because when he's sketching or doing anything he is constantly well when i was there anyway recounting stories and they were also visual and I remember we were working on a couture collection 
that was inspired by, well, apparently it was called The Witches, I think, collection, but where there was a lot of tulle and Victoriana and beads and, and beadings and everything. And it was a divine collection. I mean, the Katori is completely different to the Pret-a-Porter. But, you know, working on Chanel, it's Carl, you know. You don't really have stylists. I mean, you... Amanda was there, you know. Amanda you, Harlick. Voila, that was her first season, and Jada Amanda. And so what might you do? Well, you know, Carl, if he's inspired by something or someone, he will embrace. And I was embraced. How did you get in that door in the first place? Did you know people or did you um, just wander around looking right? Well, I always think the power of the visual does allow people to collect you. Well, I found at the markets, but like in the poubelle, in the rubbish, mm -hmm. this fabric that was like a brocade, but yeah. <laughs> destroyed, but fabulous. And I, I wouldn't call it, I embroidered, but I reapplied a gold thread and, you know, I recreated the fabric. Let's put it this yeah. way. Um, well, we would say upcycled now, but you wouldn't have upcycled, used that word then. No. <laughs> um, and I had found a tortoiseshell handbag frame in the poubelle and I created with what I found in the poubelle a fabulous jumpsuit that I think I still have somewhere in Paris. The dustbin jumpsuit? Yeah. Couture. <laughs> Asymmetric, uh, but yeah. she was like a ball gown jumpsuit. But it was. But were you wearing her? Yes, I wore oh, her, yeah. and and someone from Chanel had taken note and sight, and that is how I was embraced into the world of Chanel. And then, for example, like Givenchy, it was working on the creative of a collection. You know, from the idea of maybe any inspirational image. The fabric research, the accessories, the, you know, working at the studio sometimes if, if I'm not 100% on the accessories and at one point sometimes I can be only on the accessories or maybe more, everything does feed off of each other. I know now working in houses, it's become a little bit more separate and separated, whereas before... Let's say, and I never did work, unfortunately, but I felt like I did, mm -hmm. but I didn't. I wished. At Saint Laurent, everyone was, you know, the juices were constantly flowing. I know one of my ultra divine, 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 dear, dear, dear friends, Ellie Top, who has been the jewelry accessories designer at Lanvin since Albert Elbaz, and he's still there now, and he has his haute jewellery collection under his own name, Elie Top. Uh, he was working at Saint Laurent, so I knew everything. And I did have uh, multiple chances of meeting Monsieur Saint Laurent, who's always really endearing, charming, and j'adore. And how did you become friendly with Lulu de la Falaise? I know that you... Well, through Elie Top. And I was going to see the couture shows, and that's when I first cried at a fashion show, really, at a Saint Laurent couture show. Not because it was so outlandish or so... Well, they weren't then. No, at all. The complete opposite. But to see the construction and the everything and the precision and the perfection was beyond anything that I thought. I mean, I am, I think extremely sensitive to beauty and I think that's beautiful seeing the Saint Laurent show was for me the ultimate to listeners who may be thinking well heck 
I am also extremely sensitive to beauty. <laughs> but how do you make a living out of it? And if you were to give some advice to people well, dreaming of a life. Well, being sensitive to beauty is necessary to work. I mean, this is work. I mean, there are no weekends. And today also, it has completely changed where I was saying to well, someone... So you live your whole life that way, is the point. Well, everyone now is also a brand. And this is where things have changed because who knew, you know? I mean, Andy Warhol did, obviously. He did? Well, uh, yes, he did. He was I mean, right, wasn't he? He was right. Well, he was like perhaps it's not 15 minutes no. of fame, but you know what I mean? It's it's a juggling act. It's more of a circus. It's always been a circus, but it's constant. In my line of work, I often meet young people who perhaps my intern at a magazine I'm working at, and not all the time, of course, but often I'll say, why do you want to work in fashion? What do you want to do? And the answer can be about fame as opposed to doing something. Wait, 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 wait. So the answer is, well, I want to go to shows and I want to be photographed or I want to... And not said with great ego, said with genuine yeah. you know, excitement. But the, what people have lost sight of is the fact that you don't get famous just for... Oh, I mean, I think the problem is some people do. Yeah, but really, it is a reality. generally, Wait. the route to f- career satisfaction comes through doing and creating. I not, think and then the fame can be an adjunct. Career and personal satisfaction, it's, uh, it's a shame that the, um, it's very vacant and the sterility of the senses, in a way, has exceeded the deep yearning and real passion But scratch the surface of the most interesting people and there's loads underneath, otherwise they're not interesting. So in your case, you work on film. I want to ask you about your costume design work. So in 2012, you were nominated for a César. Yes, correct. That's amazing. Thank you, darling. That was for a film um, which is called My Little Little Princess, which was an underground independent film based on a true story by Eva Ionesco, the daughter of Irina Ionesco, the art photographer who Erotic I, photographer. We, 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 who I actually worked with a lot. She was one of my major photographer, inspirational research, you know. I would find old photo magazine, a lot of old photo magazine at the Pus de Klingencourt or wherever. And uh, that's where I discovered her work first. Uh, Quite rare foremost. to be a female photographer then. Well, that's it, because there was an issue that was celebrating the female photographers. And I remember it was her, Deborah Turberville, Sarah Moon. I love um, Sarah Moon. Was Sheila Metzner involved? There was a handful of these very individual female photographers and each aesthetic, I mean, I lived. So describe for us just briefly what her work looked like. Majority very black and white, very Baroque. The images that I adored were the icons, the women. She is originally from Romania, so you have these uh, sort of orthodox Romanian, erotic women, full breasts, flowers, crosses, veils, Baroque. Mm. Um, And of course, she is ultra infamous for photographing her daughter, Ava, quite young, in provocative poses. I know both stories of both women separately and together. And um, it's a very biblical story. And there is no... They were both victims 
of a situation. I'm not justifying Irina's work with Ava as a child, but um, I was sensitive and adored her images and inspired me. The icons, the women who I know were representing her search of her mother, who she never had. Irina Ionesco grew up in a circus and she was a dancer with a cobra, <laughs> for example. And we're talking about the 60s and perhaps that David Hamilton period and the Louis Malle period. And again, I'm not justifying or, you know. How did you go about costuming this film? Ava approached me because I had and was working with her mother she approached me because she felt that I could perhaps understand the essence of the work, the mother and the psychology, the visuals of the work and the psychology of both characters. It was my first film. I was excited. And of course, I had to do this film somehow for me also. And, um, and where did you begin? You know, with cinema, it's a complete different... How collaborative is it? I mean, it must be extremely so. Yes, but it, fundamentally, it's not my film. So I am proposing, and in the end, I mean, one doesn't know what is going to be on the cutting floor or what. And the script gets updated constantly. So there are scenes that are taken out. There are scenes that are created from nothing. But what is really important is to understand the psychology of each character and of course I mean I love Hitchcock and I love uh, Fellini and I love the uh, Nouvelle Vague and I and as that teenage girl you were watching your insomniac films in the night. exactly and, and you know the film is set in the late 70s 80s and of course the 60s was the beginning if you like of recycle and you know 60s, 70s, it was, you know, the 40s were back. Oh, it was harking back as well, so much to the well, golden age of cinema Sa stuff Hello as well. Saint Laurent, 30s, you yeah. know, also with his famous 40s collection, that was a complete scandal. But, you know, that was the period where a lot of things were being recycled and perhaps that's why I also love yeah. that period. But, you know, the 20s were back, the 30s were back, the 40s. And the, even though we didn't use the word vintage, that's voila, what, it was, that was the birth of exactly. it. Exactly, wait, wait, wait. And uh, you sort of see a scene in the... The Last Tango in Paris where they are at the Puce de Clignancourt and, you know, she's looking for a wedding dress and it's, I think, a wedding dress from, like, maybe it's not officially a wedding dress, but I think a dress from perhaps the 20s or 30s, you know, and that was very much... Um, alive and who could really afford because you know during the 40s as well the women well under German occupied Paris France you know they were really extravagant they had little oh, yeah, money is, mm. but you know the shoulders were out to here uh, Zazu Zazu that Zazu culture thing was about trying to say a bit of a very Hitler, very it? punk also yeah it was way uh, the pencil line uh, for the non-silk hosiery that they could not find and afford and they were actually uh and i know this uh, they were creating pieces fabulous pieces from like oh well anything cloth, you get you get anything. your curtains if yes good no like tablecloths yeah, whatever and the turban and the because they couldn't go to get their hair done but they want to look really good to really say you know 
the f*** off to, you know, like, yeah. we are resisting. C'est vive la résistance. There's a whole thing about lipstick being part of that. Voilà. Um, I mean, just completely. That, that it was a symbol of not giving up. Exactly. And even though it seems so frivolous and so tiny. No, but it is. It's, it's the sword. It, it is a sword. It's a bullet, you know. And uh, that's where fashion is fabulous. You know, that is when, I don't want to say the meaning of, or like, you know, you have... Uh, the integrity, like you said, but, you know, it's definitely resisting, celebrating, expressing, and liberté, égalité kind of a, mm. you know. I must must ask you about the bicycle because um, as I am a greenie and I love ideas of cutting down greenhouse emissions, cycling is one of the best things you can do. Oh, and yet few people in the world cycle quite so glamorously oh, as you. Thank you, darling. <laughs> I will love you forever. I remember riding my first bike in Paris and it was actually Jeremy Scott who lent me his mountain bike. Stop it. Yeah. Was it? Wait, wait, wait. I mean, we were obviously friends before, which was over 20 years ago. And he went back to, uh, I think, uh, Kansas for the summer vacation. And I was happy to stay in Paris because I hadn't been in Paris for that long. And you got uh, to babysit the bike. And, and I asked him, you know, can I borrow? And he said, sure. And I do remember the first time my friend was on rollerblades and he was like, I'll come and pick you up. <laughs> and I used to ride the bike when I was young. I mean, who doesn't know how to ride a bike, darling? But for some reason, I thought the bike was going to take me there. And I forgot you had to pedal. <laughs> she had work. Well, no, no, no. But I just, it's that it didn't synchronize for me immediately, honestly. It was very funny. And I will laugh at myself. It's fine. May, the next morning, like, it traumatized me. And I woke up and I rode the bike all over Paris. And the feeling was liberating. And since then, there was no turning back. And when Jeremy got back to Paris after his vacation and, of course, you know, reclaimed his velo, I invested in my own and there was no turning back. I love, 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 love riding the bike. If I don't ride the bicycle, if I'm not physically moving and the bicycle is just so... For me, divine. Yes, everyone says it's dangerous in Paris. I mean, anything could be dangerous in a way if you are not leaving your house, you know, or whatever. But it's so much more divine, you know, living life on wheels. And yes, I am very like environment green and j'adore, but you know, physically, mentally, it does keep me focused. But you really, you don't just ride your bike places like, I don't know, out for a jaunt or to go shopping or to meet someone. You do ride your bike to shows wearing heels. Yes, but I do go to you go everywhere, the supermarket. Everywhere. 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 That's how, that's everywhere. Just how that's you do it. Way. I mean, I do walk as well, but it's maybe from my apartment to my bike. <laughs> But it's my transport in life so in Paris. Especially. What might you wear to cycle? Everything, everything. It, it, well, they're not garments. Kimono. That might get caught. I was going to say. Well, voila, well, voila, because exactly because it's true. I have been on a bike in Couture before. Let's say Uber or the privatized car service. The taxis were like a nightmare and can still be in Paris. 
And how many moments have we found ourselves not being able to catch a cab? And when the Velib came out, which I can't remember when now, but uh, we would get back maybe sometimes from parties on a bike if we couldn't get a cab, if we couldn't walk. And, you know, you have to create this aerodynamicness to the look. And I constantly do. Like if I'm wearing a major coat, it depends on, of course, but I always wear heels. And there is a drapagerie going on. Usually, I'm going to call this Catherine Barber cycling in heels. Cycling heels, drapes, 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 darling, more drapes, drapes, drapage. (laughs) (laughs) But also conquering the drapes, conquering the drapes, embracing the drapes. (laughs) But not for you. I mean, you just couldn't and wouldn't, I'm presuming, ever just pop on a bit of a cycle helmet and some lycra? Look at your face. (laughs) I'm not, no, I'm not against lycra, depending on, but well, I know the look that you're pushing. No. No. Uh, No, darling. No, no, no. no. Pas possible. And just finally, as we're talking about the look that I just pushed, which would absolutely be inappropriate in your wardrobe, how big is your wardrobe? Je ne sais pas. She's endless. Narnia. She's overfloweth. All right, if you're not going to tell me how big your wardrobe is, let us talk instead about where your wardrobe has taken you. I speak of the news that you are anointed. One of Vanity (laughs) Fair's very best dressed. Oh, I am very happy to be... (laughs) Didn't that just happen just now? It just happened now, which is j'adore. Is it your first time? Yes, yes, my cherry has been popped in... Well, actually... I have been featured in the best dress list in the French Vanity Fair, but of course, American Vanity Fair, it's the Vanity Fair of all mother Vanity Fairs. And it's, it's wonderful. <laughs> no, no, it, I mean, it's, it's fabulous. I haven't actually seen everyone. Um, I did receive a completely divine email announcing and, and I thought how j'adore of this moment to be. And I love Vanity Fair. I buy Vanity Fair. I read Vanity Fair. The articles in Vanity Fair, I mean, I love. The the American or the British, I think uh, the journalism and the whole everything, you know. I keep those best issues because See? it's actually a mar- it's fab. <laughs> okay. I mean, for me, it's a, it's a window on a time as well that you voilà. can say, ah. Oui, oui. I think that it's definitely the essence bottled. And Vanity Fair, it sounds good, but it really is, uh, they capture the essence of the moment. And it's not necessarily a trend, even though things are trending. It's a pretty good honour. Well, I I do feel honoured, like not in a superficial way of, you know, but I think it's (laughs) j'adore. Three words to say goodbye with. Devotion, darling, j'adore. Merci. Thank you, darling. Thank you for listening to Wardrobe Crisis. To learn more about our guests and the issues that we've spoken about today, hop on over to my website, which is clairepress.com forward slash podcast. You can get in touch there and I really hope you will. I'd love to hear from you. And you can also find links to my social media. And finally, if you're enjoying the show, please head over to iTunes and subscribe. You know what they say, first in best dressed. Subscribers are first to find out when there's a new episode and it also helps other people discover wardrobe crisis. So I'd love your help with that because the more people who switch on to ethical fashion, the better.
music is by Montaigne. She recorded this special acoustic version of Because I Love You, which is from her Glorious Heights album, especially for Wardrobe Crisis. How good is that? Thank you, Montaigne. Because I love you, my parents feel that this is a waste of time. I tell you where, okay, I won't admit that I am blind. My friends don't feel that I'm carrying a steel. I tell them all that they are wrong. Because I love you, because I love you.